Hi, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Katie. I'm Alan. And we're still married. You're tired? You tired? I am... You look radiant, It's because by the, way. this halo light that we bought to put on our computer is shining on me, and I look super tan. Yeah, we it. just recorded this interview you're about to hear, and we, we still have the... Uh, that backlight since we shared our webcam with the the couple that you're going to hear today. But yeah, it, it does. I don't know. It doesn't do wonders for me, but it really makes does wonders for me. Thank you. Well, I'm just saying like, I'm ugly and I'm staying ugly with this light and you're beautiful and you get beautifuler, beautifuler? with, with the light. Beautifuler. 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 Yeah. We are absolutely emotionally exhausted. I think a lot of people listening probably feel the same way. You're right. There are a lot of people. There's so much happening. Not only are we dealing with COVID, but now we're going to talk about racism and we're going to we're going to talk about things that are really heavy. And I think this is this weekend specifically was exhausting and great. We are still meeting with couples. And couples that come into town just on the fly and talking to them and that are just starting out going through all of this. And we are prepping for another workshop and everything happening in the world. I am, you guys, I am beat. I am so emotionally drained. We'll get to this in the, in the episode that we recorded, but the other night I got a message from um, a friend and it was one of those messages that was so heavy on my heart that my morning routine this morning just went out the window because I was just, I didn't even know how to handle the information or process what I was seeing and hearing. Is that how you feel? Yeah. And that, yeah, that happened two nights ago and I know it was last night. Oh, It was last night. You're right. It was last night. Well, Katie and I had this moment uh, yesterday during lunch. Remember this moment? <laughs> I mean, so many, you guys listening here, you know, how emotionally exhausting today can be. <laughs> Just with all the serious things that are happening in the world and you want to understand. And so you're reading things and you're trying to sit down with people and you're trying to learn more and have a better approach. And it's a really good thing, but it's, it's hard and it, it's exhausting and it's tiring. to care. It is exhausting to care. That is a good way of putting it. It's exhausting to care. And so I've been kind of going through what a lot of people have and just learning and doing this and that. And I'm still very interested in seeing the, 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 the church's response to a lot of things. And I'm sharing some of these things with Katie and what I didn't really realize was that when, as I was preparing lunch uh, in the kitchen with Katie yesterday, I didn't realize that you, Katie, had gotten to this like emotional exhaustion boiling point. Almost, it's not even a boiling point because there's it wasn't like this explosion. Like you just gotten to this point where it's like this is just too much. And I shared one more thing about something that a church leader had said recently, and I immediately could tell with your response that you were not wanting to talk about this in those moments. It's so easy in a mixed faith marriage for, for the the reactions to escalate. So I say this thing and you, and your, your response. And as you know, your spouse, you can kind of tell what certain sound <laughs> effects mean. You just, you kind of went, mm-hmm. you gave this disinterested. Mm-hmm. The reaction 
And the temptation is to respond with, can't you just care about something that I care about? Like, why can't you just pay attention for a second and care about this? But, and, and that we went back and forth a little bit. We did go back and forth where it's like, I called it out. I said, it seems like you really don't want to hear about church stuff right now. And do you remember what you, what, how that back and forth went? No, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, no, emotionally exhausted, right? Just... Hey, everybody, it's 1130 at night. We just got done with the two hour interview. But uh, you said back to me, you said, you know, I, I just we're talking about trying to understand people. And we're talking about sitting down with people and hearing their stories and how someone can lose their job over an insensitive comment mm-hmm. at this day and age. So why are we overanalyzing every single thing that someone says? Yep, And... I kind of put it together at that point of like, there's more than going, there's more going on here than just this specific comment. This is everything is mushed together and we are tired. And so we just called it out. We said, you know what? Everything is really heavy. Let's just take a break from, from, I won't bring that stuff up to you. We talked about deactivating, not deactivating, but stepping away from Facebook. Yeah, that lasted like, what, an hour? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I still enjoy, I mean, that's the hard part is we really enjoy learning this stuff and talking about things. But then sometimes you just want to stop. <laughs> I mean, this is why you guys, and I think that all of you fall into some of the same patterns, is it's 1030 at night and we're exhausted. And what do we want to do? Do we want to try an, a new show? No. We want to watch something that's funny and comforting. So we fall back into the office and Parks and Rec. I was going to say we, we want to like be intimate with each other, but is that? Not no. either. <laughs> that's the second Saturday that's of every month. Second. Stop. I, I think that... You know, when things get really heavy, all of us just need something to brighten up, something light that we don't have to feel so emotionally withdrawn from. Right. That moment that you brought it up, I just was not in the mood to talk about it. And we called it out. We both recognized, look, I'm feeling just overwhelmed right now. So this is, I recognize that I'm feeling bristly about this because I don't, I, I just can't talk about anymore. And I, I was really, ha- really proud of us for kind of working through it because it could have ended in us not talking for the rest of the day. I could have stormed off and not said anything, but instead we both kind of, I said, thank you to you. Like, thank you for talking through that with me. I text you. I told you before you left because you, you went to take Zara to or her doctor's appointment. We, we really, anyway, I'm grateful for that moment. That was a win for us. Yeah. And I think, um, what so many of you are thinking and feeling because we've, we're pretty in tune with a lot of our listeners and because a lot of you listeners are our friends, you're our personal friends. And so we're talking to you on Marco Polo, we're texting with you. And I think that overall there is a general sense of, of anxiety, of, maybe depression for some people, um, maybe some anger for some of you. And it is weighing heavily on this topic of racism. And, you know, whatever, whatever you feel and think about racism within the church, that is totally, completely valid. You know, those both who are fully in and those who are fully out. One of the reasons 
why we decided to do this episode that we will introduce you to our couple. One of the reasons why we wanted to do it is because of the similarities that we have drawn <laughs> from from their story. Alan and I, I think, are feeling like we want to be champions for anyone that feels that like they don't fit in. And because we know what it's like to not fit in. Yeah. And I think that a lot of our listeners, a lot of them, are also feeling this drive, this pull, this sadness, this compassion, all of those things to to people who are right now not fitting in in a country where they should fit in. These feelings are real for a lot of us. And if you're not feeling them, maybe you're avoiding it. Maybe you're avoiding not listening or or getting too much into it. It's hard to avoid when you're in COVID and you have nothing else to think, <laughs> right. think about or read. Um, but I just want to share with you in the heaviness that you feel because we feel it as well, both in our relationship because it, it just you know creeps into every part of, of you and your daily life. We're here for you. And this is why we feel like it was big deal to have this couple on our show today. That was wonderfully put. I'm not going to try to add a single thing to it. Before we get to the interview, we want to let everybody know that today, June 19th, it's Juneteenth. Uh, we want, Which is significant. Yeah, it's great. The timing yeah. was perfect. So we wanted everybody to, to know that there are only, what, we have three or four? No, I, I think it's three. It's three. So mm -hmm. we have three spots left in our workshop on a tightrope, this six-week online course that is presented by Katie and me, but more specifically <laughs> by the Natasha Helfer-Parker. Uh, she produces and presents the content. We will have all of these couples together starting July 28th. So if this is a... I mean, in the course, we talk about a lot of things, but we, we talk about... Uh, negotiating the tenders, which is how do you deal with um, my spouse wants to drink alcohol? How do we deal with church attendance? How do we deal with, you know, uh, can, is it right for me to ask my spouse not to wear garments? How does that conversation go? That's one of the episodes. We do two weeks on parenting. We do how to talk to loved ones. There's a lot of great conversations that happen in this course. And the first one was fantastic. The second one's going to be great as well. There's spots for three. And we have to call out that, especially in the second course, we had some great donors in the first as well. But based on three couples that have stepped forward to, to sponsor other couples, there are four couples in this second group that would not have otherwise been able to join without the generosity of these three couples. So... We are very grateful for those couples and the, the, the four couples that are in the course are extremely grateful for those couples that have sponsored them as well. Yeah, we get that this is a really hard time, especially with COVID people. We had someone say, hey, my spouse lost his job, but we would really benefit from this course. And so uh, we went to one of our donors who offered to sponsor them and and they took care of that. And so... You know, if you yourself don't feel like you need this course, 
but you would like to pay it forward to the couples who do need the course, who could really benefit from help um, from Natasha and six weeks of um, getting to know other people in their position. You know, I think that one way you could do it is you could donate to Marriage on a Tightrope um, through our Venmo account. You could earmark it for course participants. You can contact us directly if you would like to sponsor a couple. That I think any of those ways to donate would be amazing. We literally, literally, Ann Perkins, we literally have Chris Drager. Chris Drager. We have a line in our budget for the workshop. So when we get donations that are earmarked for the workshop, we put it in that bucket. Uh, and if the course fills up and those are not, and you decide to donate and those are not uh, used, we're going to keep it in there for round three. We're really just trying to look out for all the couples that, that want to uh, be able to do this course that, for one reason or another, can't afford it. But thank you so much for the ones who have donated and those who continue to donate to us. We really appreciate your support. All the money that we get goes back into the podcast and specifically goes to help other couples who really need it. And so I just, I mean, I don't, I don't think we can stress enough, like how appreciative we are for those of you who do support us because it really does make a difference and it helps us to continue to do what we love to do. That's right. And support doesn't only mean we're talking a lot about support right now, which is great, but it doesn't always mean donate. We, we appreciate the kind words, the emails that we get, the texts that we get, uh, Facebook messages, Instagram uh, Tinder swipe rights, all of the thi- all the different ways. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm just kidding. So uh, we just love all the ways that you do support us, and please reach out. We'd love to to hear from you. We received a really cool long email today. Did yes, you read it? Yes, I did. You need to respond to it. I we know. have a system set up that if it's the wife that reaches out, Katie responds. If it's the husband that reaches out, I respond. <laughs> but uh, it was a great email. So thank. We love reading your stories. Uh, send them over to us and we hope you enjoy this episode with Jen and Jameson Holman. And one last thing, if you would like to be on the podcast, please let us know. Yeah. We so would love an email. to have you on. Marriage and Cyro at com. Tell us what's interesting about you and we'll set up a time to, to record. Just reach as out. Jen, as Jen will say in the episode, I'm basic. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. And now we have the pleasure of being joined by I'm fairly certain the the geographically closest couple that we've ever interviewed, and we've interviewed a few couples that were pretty close. Chelsea and Nick Homer live within a mile. We interviewed with Richard Osler. He lives, what, two miles away or so. But we're talking, I could throw rocks at these people's house and they could do the same (laughs) back to us. Thankfully, we are on better terms than that. We'd love to welcome Jen and Jameson Holman to the podcast. Hi. Hey. Hey. Oh, we're so excited to have you guys here. Thanks for joining us. Well, we're excited to be here. So. I'm just sad that we can't do this all together. I know. I know. Well, we could have. We could have sort of not really. Yeah, I mean, yes, you guys live close. You've got young kids. This room that we record in our little studio, studio, it's an office. Yeah. And it's not even that. It is an oven. It gets so hot in here. <laughs> so with four of us, we would just be breathing in each other's carbon dioxide. That's right. okay. Yeah. Uh, everybody, we've known the Holmans for about four years now, maybe a little, a smidge bit when less. Did when in? did you move in? October, October of 2016. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, Man, has it really been four years? Yeah. Almost. Man. Wow. That's nuts. 
So they live in our neighborhood in the same ward. And uh, they have a unique perspective that I think a lot of our listeners will really learn from and appreciate. So we would love to start it off by just getting to know you crazy kids. Let's, <laughs> we want to hear your backstory, where you grew up, your favorite sports, what you like to eat as a kid. I don't even know what I'm saying. We well, it all started your- <laughs> in 1984 oh, man. when I was born, a beautiful bouncing baby girl. <laughs> You need to enter in like a dream sequence music, like some type of like a harp or something. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't have a very unique story. I I think that what we have is very similar to what a lot of people have, in that we met at church. Which sucks because I really would have preferred to have had a really yeah. awesome story. Like, yo, I met her in a burning building. She was screaming, <laughs> like, "Come get me, come save me!" And I'm You're like, so extra. I, I don't know who you are, but I will. I will save you, fair maiden. But no, it didn't. It didn't work I out. Mean, that way. It was kind of like that, except it was a singles ward, right? Singles yeah. ward. You, you, saved, you saved her from the burning building that is a singles ward. <laughs> yeah, the, the dumpster fire that is a singles ward. Yeah, I guess we so. are. We are about as basic as they come. I know. We met at a singles ward activity. Well, you know what we did? We did put a little spice on it. We met at a breakfast group. Oh, breakfast group. That's yeah. right. Whereas it's normally like a dinner group. But we met at a breakfast group. Yeah, and oh, he, gosh. he spilled. I know it's so I, cute. I, no, no, you spilled. This is syrup the, this is not syrup on my on, on my, on my chaise. Stop. <laughs> he spilled. And, he he left. I'm sitting down on a chaise. I sat next to him, and he left and left his plate there. And syrup got on my butt. And so, so he comes up to me real smooth afterwards. And this is what I said. I puts said, his hand, puts his hand on the very small of my back. Yeah. And mm. he says, and I, and I said, "Hey, girl, you spilled syrup on my shades." No, no, you did not say that. He said, <laughs> "Hey, girl, you got syrup on your booty." <laughs> you got syrup on your booty and mind you my booty was about 100 pounds slimmer at that point so it was a sweet booty <laughs> so i was i didn't mind him look and from that moment jen knew that they would end up together <laughs> no no she actually did not know that i almost broke up with him like she like broke almost broke up with me like three or four times yeah so we skipped about 20 to 29 years of your life both oh, yeah. of y'all's lives. So uh, let's, okay. let's, Jen, where did you grow up, Jen? Oh, I am, I grew up in Riverton and then South Jordan. So Joe. So the South end of the Valley. So Joe, okay. Here in Utah. Pretty basic. Remember my whole life. I'm, I'm, I'm so basic. I don't know how to say this anymore. <laughs> that I'm the most basic person you will ever meet. Like default white girl. Shut up. I don't I don't want basic to be misconstrued as boring by any means because Jen is anything but boring. That's right. No, no, no. I'm 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 fun. (laughs) I'm a redhead. It's like built into our DNA, right? It is. It is true. It is. Agreed. But you know, nothing exciting. So uh, where did you go to school? Did you go to what high school around here first of all? What high school? I went to Bingham High School. Big, yeah, class of 2002. Go Oops. fighting hawks. Miners. Miners. The miners. <laughs> okay, Jen, did, yeah. you graduate, did you graduate from high school? Did. I am, a, I am a proud college, excuse me, proud high school graduate. Congratulations. I did go to college. I Ooh, went to college? fashion school. Nice. Yeah. I don't do much of that anymore, but I had fun when I did it. 
story though when we were dating mm-hmm. uh i stayed up 24 straight hours helping her along with our mutual friend prepare for her fashion show i did a fashion show what was it salt lake fashion and design i forgot no now you're gonna i don't remember so that was commitment that's when i knew okay i must really like this girl if i'm willing to stay up 24 straight hours I and, told you to go to sleep and, and miss out he on couldn't quality. Have, he couldn't have stitch time. to save his life. No, he was useless. Not. No, I mean, but <laughs> he provided moral support and then just saying, "I, I got, I got I diet am cokes. So tired. I got so many diet cokes. Okay, <laughs> I'll put in work." <laughs> you can't see how 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 intensely my eyes are rolling oh my right gosh, now. My eyes are rolling back so far, <laughs> so far. Good thing this is not a video podcast. There's smiles, smiles abound though. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, Jameson, how about your upbringing? Where did you grow up, my friend? I grew up in Mississippi, and I split my time between. Uh, my birthplace, which is located in the Mississippi North Delta in a small town called Marks. I thought it was Delta. Delta. Or no, 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 that's how you say it here. Delta. 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 Okay. Yeah. And I also split time between Jackson, Mississippi, which is the capital. I'm going to Jackson. So, yeah. you know, shout out to Bruno Mars, Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. where I, I split my time growing up. Um, I went to high school at Jim Hill High School, home of the Mighty Tigers. So, yeah, there's that. And it was awesome. I um, went to Jim Hill because they had the only IB program in the state, International Baccalaureate, not Irritable Bowels. Okay. (laughs) Just for (laughs) clarificational purposes. After I completed my IB program there, I went on to Mississippi State University the Bulldogs and the uh, mighty SEC. <laughs> and I pursued my undergraduate degree in uh, psychology and graduated with a, a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Wow. So what did you go on to do after that? Well, I immediately got recruited Special. out of college to start my career as a line staff for a residential treatment center in a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, where I worked with uh, adolescent juvenile males uh, between the ages of 13 to 16 that were um, struggling with a lot of different psychological disorders, but they were all sex offenders. It was a sex offender program. Yeesh. Yeah, it was, it was rough and it was a, a lot of work and I put in a lot of hours, but it was the most rewarding experience of my life because I got to really work with these kids and help them shape and mold them into uh, hopefully better citizens. If any of them are out there listening to this, first of all, wow, congrats to you, good sir. Um, they, they would have to rehabilitate, yes. join, the, join the Mormon church, yes. marry someone else in the Mormon church, yes, and then leave the Mormon church, yes, and <laughs> really then find specific. our podcast. Exactly. But crazier things have happened. I, that's what I'm saying. Stranger things have happened. So <laughs> right. it could very well be a possibility, but it's true. It was just a pure joy to watch those kids grow and to see their change process happening right before your eyes. And it was definitely worth all the long hours and the blood and the sweat and the tears, man. You cry with them, you laugh with them and you know, you wish them well when they finally get to that point where they can transition home. And it was a really good time. I really enjoyed my time working there. So I'm trying to find, follow this timeline. Okay, so you're you're in that adolescent center working mm-hmm. for them. Um, where did you go to school for your MFT? 
So I got my graduate degree and my master's from uh, Argosy University, which sadly is no longer a campus here in uh, Draper in Utah. It is no longer. Right. But you're skipping over like a decade of stuff. I am skipping over a decade of stuff. He's got a whole life before me. But here's the thing. I was asked, where did I pursue my graduate degree? Okay, calm down. That was on me. That one's on me, Jen. You can yell at me. Alan. (laughs) Well, let's, yeah, talk about that decade. So from that decade, I mean, I went from working at that treatment center to working at, oddly enough, a childcare after school program. I was the uh, curriculum coordinator. I was the only male on staff there. Um, but He's really the altruistic person in this relationship. <laughs> I'm like, let's buy some pretty shoes and, you know, let's put on a fashion show at lunch. He's That's like, I'm going to help. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to help the children. And I'm just like, shoes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Shit. Yes. You yeah. gotta have you gotta have both of those traits in a in a marriage. Yes. To, right. You balance each other out. You balance right. each other right. out. I agree. I think so. I did that for a little while, and um, after that, I had an opportunity to help start a com. Well, not start a company. It wasn't my company, but they were opening up a new location, the first of its kind in the state of Mississippi. So I uh, came on board to be a warehouse personnel at a at this factory where we just did like herbal essence type you know mineral vitamin whatever something or other extract stuff natural life sciences stuff right there you go and from there that's when i realized wait man i really enjoy helping people i don't enjoy being in a warehouse shoving pills in a box to ship off to you know god knows where so that's when the call came to go get back into the 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 healthcare field caring field or will someone help the children field you know (laughs) right well, when yeah. did you tell them about when you converted? Oh, yes. So this was uh, 2004. Actually, this month, it was June of 2004. Um, I'm coming up on, what is, this would be my 16. 16th year on, what, let's see, Saturday, Sunday, maybe oh, Monday. I, I think it was the 20, I don't remember, but it was somewhere in the 20s in June of 2004 is when I converted. Uh, but that story was well before I ever left to go to work at the treatment center. Before you left? Uh, before I left school. I, school. I, I, got, I, got, I converted and got baptized in Mississippi while I was still at Mississippi State. So you, you were a college student when that happened? I was. In fact, and- I was two months shy of my 21st birthday when I got converted. And let me tell you what these dudes did, all right? Just, just to point out the slickness of missionaries. At the time, I didn't realize that they, that's what they were called, all right? So these two slick guys come in, and they're talking like all of this stuff about Jesus, and I'm like, of course you're going to you know, talk to me, and I'm going to be interested, because I'm from the Bible Belt. I mean, why not Jesus? Yay, right? Then, right when we got to the part where it's like, well, okay, you know, you're going to have to give up, like, doing all the stuff that you were doing, and whatever. I was an avid drinker, okay? I was really into, like, you know, beer tasting. I had made plans to go to like Oktoberfest and like try all the different beers, everything. And then they came, they came and they hit me with this one. All right. You ready for this? Well, Christ died for your sins on the cross. The least you can do is give up drinking beer. <laughs> I was like, you sons of, and like from there, I was, so pissed off. I was like, Argh! so I said, all right, fine, fine, fine. 
And then I just immediately poured out my 40 for my homie, Jesus. <laughs> and I went from there. You poured a 40 for Jesus. Oh, that, that's got to be the title of this episode. <laughs> I think we just found the title for this episode. <laughs> oh, that's there, great. I, I, I gave up, you know, my, my, my quest to go to Oktoberfest and, you know, I haven't looked back ever since then. So I imagine that, that joining the church then had to play a part into your decision to move to Utah. Yes. Yes, it did. Uh, in fact, one of the people I was working with when I was at the treatment center had a best friend who went to BYU and they were best friends and she would often come over and visit and she kept saying, Oh man, you would really do well out in Utah. You should live in Utah. You should go to Utah. And I'm like, why? There, there's nothing in Utah for me. Like that's like a blip on the map. No, I'm going to California. All right. Cause that's where it's at, you know, there or Seattle because you know, Seahawks. Right. Right. So she just kept talking and convincing me to, to do it. And lo and behold, she was like, Oh, and I got the perfect girl for you. And I'm like, what? I, no, I don't need that. That's that. No, I'm not. Spoiler going to alert. It was not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the plot thickens. (laughs) So after wearing me down for so long, she finally set me up with this uh, girl that she supposedly knew that she just knew I'd be a really good match for. Turns out they were not even roommates at BYU. They were hall mates. So they didn't even stay in the same room. But I eventually, she wore me down and I said, all right, fine. I'll, I'll see what's out there. If there's a way for me to get a job, then I'll go. And lo and behold, I landed a job working, of all places, in the finance industry at Fidelity Investments. Is it okay to say that? On oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You, you're not going to have to pay Fidelity any like This episode, you know. not supported by Fidelity. Not brought to you by Fidelity. <laughs> the all views right? of Jen and Jameson Holman are not necessarily <laughs> representative of Fidelity Investments. Yes. There we so go. I ended up getting a job at Fidelity, and man, I packed up my car. Uh, everything that I could fit in there, I did, including my dog at the time, sold everything else and headed West and then looked back and came to Utah. February of 2007 was when I got here. And then married this girl and then divorced her. Okay. Yeah. But you know what? We're not talking about that. So wait, hold on. We can skip that. The girl that you were set up with is Um, the one you ended up marrying first? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then that ended... And what year did that, you guys meet? That ended, and then that's when we, we met in 2011. Met in 2011. 2011. That is, we were mm-hmm. in a gigantic mega war that had to be split. Yeah. We had, what was it, the U42 award or something like that? Anyway. I don't know. It had two cool. Elder Scorn presidencies and two Relief Societies because it was so gigantic. Yeah. Wow. So they had to split it up and rearrange and redo but we met. the boundaries. We would say hey. Yeah, I mean, in the hallway randomly hey hey what's up nice fest no thanks i did say that hey you got some syrup on your butt uh you know it's 2012 you get married um i think the listeners may be struggling to figure out i mean jameson jen at what point and who had a faith crisis how did this become a mixed faith marriage yeah we're well we're good neither of us neither of us (laughs) oh no you're both still in yeah (laughs) Why yeah. would we be current, doing this? Current card-carrying current card members. members. Well, shoot, this is awkward. Um, did you guys know what this podcast was about? When we uh, 
Yeah, it's about hanging out with Alan and Katie now. Like, <laughs> if you want to record it, that's on you, Alan. I'm not. I'm not judging. <laughs> we have Zoom calls with all of our neighbors, don't I mean, you? That's right. Well, he, let, we'll explain a little bit about why we wanted Jen and Jameson to to come onto the podcast because, the, the, and this obviously, I'm not surprised. You're our, our our neighbors and friends. We know you're not in a mixed faith marriage. We know that, know that you're both still in the church. Uh, but you have a, an extremely important, uh, role to play in society today with all the craziness that is happening. Jen and Jameson are in an interracial marriage, which if this was a video podcast might be more obvious, but it is not, it is an audio podcast. So, uh, what, what got us to, to this point of wanting to record this episode was, a couple of weeks ago, Katie and I really felt it was important to invite the Holmans over to our house for dinner. And we, we asked if it was okay if Jameson specifically would talk to us about his experience with racism, both in Mississippi, in Utah, and America in general, um, what that would be like. I, I went into it, Katie, I think, I think you had the same, the same attitude going into it of, oh, this will probably be really interesting. This will be interesting. Oh, whoop-de-doo, this will be interesting. And we came out of that few-hour conversation. I think I took it a little more seriously than that. Yeah. I did. You yeah. kind of, you knew, you, I think she anticipated, had some intuition of what was coming. And I guess I didn't. Um, but we were both transformed that night. And that is a dramatic word that we wouldn't use lightly if we didn't feel that way. So first of all, before we even go any a step further... Thank you for, again, <laughs> we're thanking you publicly now for coming over and talking to us so candidly. Uh, and thank you for coming on now because the, the remainder of the episode, we would love to really provide a condensed version of what you shared with us the other night. Does that sound okay? Yeah, yeah. totally. Great. So, you know, the way that we, I think we can tie this into the topic of this podcast is... For Jen and Jameson's knowledge, a lot of listeners of our podcast, well, almost all of them are in a mixed faith marriage. And most of those, 98 plus percent of those are those that started the marriage together in the LDS church. It's kind of fun. We do have some Jehovah's Witness listeners. We do yeah. have some evangelical listeners, which is really fun. We, we do get... have couples that they got married and one spouse is LDS and the other one has never been Mormon. Yeah, we have a few of those. Predominantly, most of our listeners are those that started out both LDS and the marriage, and one of them has since left the LDS church. Mm -hmm. uh, some, an experience that many of those listeners go through is frustration or anger or just dealing with the stark reality that oftentimes people very close to them even don't want to sit down and listen, don't want to it's difficult for them to put in the effort to understand what they're going through, especially if they still share that LDS faith, because it can come across as a threat or scary, or it's too sad. Eternity is being lost. Some very real concerns, uh, legitimate, valid reasons to, for this to be difficult to talk about, but they, they feel that frustration and it's kind of the suffer in silence uh, experience that a lot of uh, listeners and we've even experienced a little bit too. So without trying to make a direct comparison to what you've experienced 
uh, as an interracial couple and Jameson, what you've experienced as a person of color here in America, um, we wanted to make that tie because I think that the rest of the conversation, absolutely, we can learn from it. Uh, not just learning about um, race issues, which we absolutely, that's the main purpose here, but it definitely ties in to our listener base and what they are, what they are uh, going through. Was that a sufficient passing grade on trying to tie everything together? <laughs> yeah. I also think though, like Alan and I talked about this after you guys left the next morning. We, well, we couldn't talk about it that night cause we were trying to digest it all in process. And then the next day is when we talked about it. And, um, and also I, I think that besides the similarities, um, you know, which there are some, but, um, besides that, I feel like Alan and I have this stage that we can talk about things that matter and that are important and that, you know, most of our listenership don't get to hear. And I think it's important to share topics that are big and are weighing on all of us right now. And so, I mean, I think just besides the, you know, marriage, faith, transition thing it's i think that it's important to talk about even if it had nothing to do with it i would still want to talk about this touche as we jump in uh everybody should know that jameson has already paid the piper when it comes to sitting down and listening because when i went through my faith transition we were home teaching companions (laughs) and we we were working together often uh and we were also in the elders corn presidency together so uh, you were the secretary. I was one of the counselors and uh, I felt we had a close enough relationship that I needed to sit down with you and explain to you what was going on with me because I was going to ask to be released from my home teaching assignments and what that, what that looked like. I didn't know how that conversation was going to go, but do you, do you remember that? You remember us chatting about that? I sure do. In fact, one of the, the, the biggest memories I have is not even this one, but it was a different one where we were uh, walking home. I think this was after church one day and we were walking home and we talked about it. And I think we were just right on the corner of now where you live. But before that uh, it was just on the, on the corner and we, we just kind of paused and talked for a little bit. And it was in that moment that I, I've, I felt like, you know what, this is important enough to you then it's important enough to me and I'm going to support you regardless of whatever you do with your life. I'm going to support you because you're going to need that because it's going to be quite the journey um, making that transition. And from there, I told you I'm here for you for life. If you need it. I remember that man. And I felt it. (laughs) I felt it. Uh, You were awesome. You were one of the few people that I pulled aside because I, you don't know, gosh, and the, the mirror, that I'm looking in when I say this comment, you said this to us a few weeks ago, you know, you don't know who you can trust. You don't know who you can open up to and how much you can say, mm-hmm. you don't want to go too far and, and make someone super uncomfortable, but then like you want them to experience that discomfort so they can learn to improve. And like, it's, there's so many parallels, but when I sat down and talked to you, the, the, the gist is that uh, you said all the things that you just did. And it was like, this is nothing. This is fine. Like, this is all right. Yeah, I remember you used the term of, 
you know, the church is the wagon that I've, I've, or the church is the train I've hitched my wagon wagon to. to. Yeah. Yeah. And that just stood out to me. It's just like, this is, this is my wagon. And if this isn't your wagon or your train, I'm ruining the metaphor, but if this is not yours, that's totally fine. That's cool, man. Yeah. And so thank you for that moment as well. And the support, there's never been any weirdness between us because of the, because of all of this. Now that we've tied it in and we'd love to go into the remainder of the time similar to what what it went through what we went through a few weeks ago we just kind of sat on the couch after we ate some barbecue and we just started asking you questions about your just your experience so maybe we can start with that yeah. Katie do you want to kick us off yeah i think um let's talk a little bit about like what is race what what did racism look like growing up for you Jameson um in mississippi so racism for me growing up was very uh, subtly in your face, if I can use that term. I know it's kind of a an opposite. Um, a little oxymoron, maybe? A little oxymoron. Yeah, I it, that. It, it, was, it was pretty subtle, but it was also really in your face. You know, I, I came from the deep south, and that portion of Mississippi is, as you may all know, is deeply rooted in some very racist history, you know, because we were at the center of, you know, all of the Confederacy stuff that was going on during the Civil War and whatnot. And so you were only 20 years out of Jim Crow when you were born, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I mean, well, I guess, <laughs> no. I mean, I guess technically, yes, because a lot of that stuff, the legislation and all of that that was still going on at the time wasn't really regulated. So a lot of those Jim Crow era laws still applied because no one really enforced any of that stuff once, you know, the desegregation, you know, stuff started rolling out. Wasn't in that the, the 60s? early 60s? Yeah, but Jim Crow stuff was around since like the 30s. No, no, no. I've said like when it ended. Again, I mean, I not really, you know, I mean, technically, no. I'll give you a perfect example. So when it was time to desegregate all the schools, this, this is a, an example of the subtlety that's kind of in your face. All the white kids end up going to prep schools or academies um, and all the black kids stayed in public school or, or, you know, people of color, kids of color. They stayed in the public schools. So while there was technically, you know, no segregation anymore, you were free to, you know, be in public school as a white kid. You were free to, well, if you wanted to pay, you could be in a private school, but it was still very much segregated. It was segregated more by class structure, by which so happened to be by race. Exactly. And so there, there was an example right there of this, the subtlety of the in-your-faceness. Like, yeah, it was desegregated, but not really. So what about, do you have any experiences growing up in Mississippi personally where you, you saw that more blatantly in your face of racism? Or what, or yeah, I think you told us a story about your grandmother too and what she would do with you. So talk a little bit about yeah. that. So, so my grandparents owned a, a convenience store uh, they were small business owners. They owned a gas station and a convenience store, a general store. And it was right on the corner of where the railroad tracks met um, and went through marks. On one side of the railroad track is where all the black people were. On the other side of the railroad track is where all the white people were. So props to my late grandfather being the businessman with the business acumen that he had purposely and strategically placed that can, that gas station right there at the Way crossroads. Way to go granddaddy. Seriously. Cause he knew he was going to get both sides of the, of the tracks. Cause everybody has to pass that point 
to go where they need to go and you're going to need to get, you know, fuel. So, yeah. So I had a lot of encounters with, you know, white people as well as black people. And, you know, there'll be often times where, you know, a bunch of, you know, white kids will come by and, you know, scream the N word at, at us, you know, me and my cousins when we were riding our bikes home from, you know, whatever we were doing, whether it was coming back from, you know, planted a playground or. I like how you say that so nonchalantly. Well, like that, that's, that's just, it's so like typical that it's not even like. Yeah. I mean, but again, this was like late eighties, early nineties, you know, it was a different time back then. I mean, even so much from when it was in the sixties, when you were getting hoses turned on you and dogs sicked on you all the time, you know, mm-hmm. it is just, that's just the way life was. And probably unfortunately still may be. You know, you know, one time I was walking home from, from school, from kindergarten or elementary school, mm-hmm. and I was holding friends with, or holding hands with one of my girlfriends, one of my little friends from the neighborhood. And I remember I was walking home and somebody called me a lesbian. I didn't know what a lesbian was. I was like seven, but I remember seeing that it was like a hateful term at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I went home and cried to my mom about how somebody called me a lesbian. And so I can't imagine how like that kind of transcends to you mm-hmm. where kids are just randomly calling you the N word. Yeah. On your bikes. Yeah. Like I mean, that's so much worse. Yeah, no, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it sucks. But again, when you come from where we come from and you're accustomed to that and you know that that's just the life that you have to live. I mean, this is the same state that has the Confederate flag as part of their, you know, state flag. You know what I mean? So it's deeply rooted in racism. Really makes and, you feel welcome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so i mean th- those were some of the experiences that we experienced and you know we knew we can't go on one side of the track after a certain time or a certain hour because it's too dangerous to be out at that time of night because you could very easily get jumped by a group of you know angry white dudes we call them good old boys i don't know if that's still a term that's being used down south but that's what i'm sure it's still a term being used down good south. old boys will come out so you had to you know make sure you stayed on your side of the tracks and you know played where you you knew you were going to be safe and when that street light came on it's time to go home no tell them what your grandma us. did though about so yeah i'm getting to that so oh. this is so this is interesting what my grandmother did and i don't know if this was in you know if she had wisdom beyond her years for this or if she just wanted me to be able to speak correctly I, i'm not sure i'm gonna take it that she knew that I was going to need this particular skill in order to be able to be successful and get out of, you know, the South or, or, you know, racist parts of the South or or whatever. So my grandmother would sit me down and this started as early as the age of five. She would sit me down on her lap and she would make me read her the newspaper. And every time I came to a word, I didn't know she would correct me and make me pronounce it correctly. And she made me enunciate all my words. She would also make me watch the news with her and granddaddy Every night before they went to bed, I had to watch the news. And so I ended up learning this, you know, regionalist accent. What do they call it in the news world? This this mid-Atlantic. No, not mid-Atlantic. That's very like. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Where it's like you can't Regionally tell, non-specific. Yeah. You just can't tell where this person is from. What do they say in Anchorman? Always... She, has oh. a, she has a non-regional accent or something like that. Right, something right. Regionally that. ambiguous. Yeah. And so- <laughs> After watching the news and, and reading newspapers, you know, I I just didn't. I, and I never really had a draw to begin with. Like, that just never was a thing for me. But my grandmother made sure that it wasn't going to be a thing for me in the future. And so, you know, I give her props to this day and thank her for that because, man, you know how many doors that opened for me being able to speak correctly? Correctly, quote, unquote. A lot. 
<laughs> well, we went to, when, when I went down to Mississippi, the only time I've been down to Mississippi, right after we had Ellie, we um, went to Walmart in some tiny town. Every, I, I feel like him. every, no, it wasn't environment. It was on your way up to Mark's. It was somewhere in between. In between. Are you talking about the Oreo incident? That yes. Was, that was, that was, I'm pretty sure that was not going was, on the way to, up to Mark's. I don't think so. I think anyway, so we get out the checker. The checker's checking us out. You tell the story better than I do. No, no, no. You go ahead. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> so the checker is checking us out and I'm trying to warn Jen and I'm like, listen, just so you know, this is not, you know, this, this is going to be an awkward interaction because we're, you know, obviously an interracial couple and it's not that is necessarily frowned upon, but it's still not. The, he shouldn't have told me that because I was ready to did, fight. It's not catching up with the times. Okay. Just, just be aware. It's just not, we're not there yet. And I'm ready to fight and, on and this. So like, there, there could be, I dare somebody. There could be something stupid goes down. So just be aware. Just, just be aware. So we get to the front of the checkout line and this, this uh, um, store clerk, cashier He's guy. A cashier. He said, he looks at me and then he looks at Jim. And then without any hesitation, he basically says, in so many words or less, oh, okay, I, I see what this is. I see what this is. Oh, y'all. So you like an Oreo, huh? So like you like you black on the outside and you white on the inside? And I was like- This is a white guy. This is a white guy, yeah. And I was like, um, sure. The white guy says that to you. Yes. Well, oh, and he also God. said that Jameson, he's like, you sound really white. Oh, yeah. I forgot I'm about like, that part. What does white sound like? Well, apparently me. So, because <laughs> if it's well educated, as sure as shit is in that guy. Uh, well, yeah, so, no, that's true too. So, Jameson, you you mentioned this speech. You know, you learned how to how to speak. Um, you you talked about that a few weeks ago as well. So, yeah, do you, do you still have to kind of deploy that strategy here as oh, a thirty yes. something year old. Yes, sir. Absolutely. What kind of situation? Um, it's in any type of situation. So whenever you're trying to go out for a job, you, you know, they did a, a interesting little bit about this on MTV in their decoded series. I would highly recommend you, you watch it, but I don't remember the title of it, but it's something to do with racism. But anyway, um, if you went into a job interview, um, and you sounded more white, you were 10 times more likely to get that job versus if you came in sounding like you were from, you know, the backwoods of Mississippi, which is where I'm, where I'm from. Um, also, it helped that they decided, you know, not to name me some crazy name like, you know, DeBrickashaw. Like I was Jimmy. Anferny. Or Anferny. You know, I was Jimmy. And that's a pretty, pretty generic name right there in and of itself. So you see my name on my resume and then you hear me speak automatically. I am in there, you know, like I'm, I'm in the competition. and I have a, a really good chance of, you know, landing that job. And it was the same thing out here in Utah. I already knew that because I was novel, because I was a black dude, that it was going to automatically be a, ooh, well, you know, we need to fill that diversity quota. So I kind of played it towards my, to, to my advantage. You know, um, if I really wanted to get this job, I, I, I worked that part up. So when I would go into an interview, I would be a little bit over the top. I would code switch. So if an interviewer were to ask me a question like, uh, well, why would you want to work here? I'd be like, well, let me tell you exactly the reason why. I think I'd be a great candidate to work at your company. You take the bass out of your voice. I take the bass out of my voice and I'm like, well, Tom, let me tell you. 
I think I would make an excellent candidate because I possess a certain set of skills, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Are you right? channeling Chappelle's white person voice? Because it, <laughs> it, it feels like this is a Chappelle moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. You got to speak white guy in order to be able to get in, you know. I, I oh, think that, that, well, I just remember like you telling us that people already have their reservations about just the way you look. So of because of that, yeah. when you are well-spoken and you speak like them and mm-hmm. it puts a lot of people's fears at ease, right? Yes, that's correct. Because again, going back to what Alan was saying a little bit earlier, you never know who you can really trust and you don't know who you can really be like 100% yourself in front of. So you have to put on this presentation to make, you know, to not be uh, scary to other people or to, you know, set them at ease and not put them off. He's not trying to scare the children. I am not trying to scare the children. Because he did you one know time. Wu Tang is for the children. Wu Tang is for the children. Okay. <laughs> uh, so when the when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, it, we always have a Super Bowl party. You guys have been. Yes, yes we have. We Lots have. of fun. Always welcome. <laughs> Post COVID, maybe. <laughs> anyway, Seahawks won in what year? It was 2014. 2014. And he got amped, like so aggressively amped. And we've got lots of little nieces and nephews. And at that yeah. point, they were really like, they were really Ellie young. was a baby. No, Ellie, I was pregnant. Yeah, yeah Never you mind. were. Yeah. And he, like, these children were frightened of him because he was getting so excited and just like <laughs> really, I mean, he's a loud guy as is, but he was getting really excited. Yeah. So he doesn't want to scare scare the children. He doesn't no. want to scare the old people. No, don't want to well, scare any of any any of those demographics. So, I mean, it's just slight little things that you do. Like I said, you you take the bass out of your voice. You you know you have a brighter inflection, a brighter tone to your your timbre. You know, just little small things that you do to just make sure you don't scare anyone, that you don't put anybody off, that you don't make anyone feel uncomfortable in their skin. And it's, it's all about making other people, specifically white people, not be, you know, intimidated by your presence. Because I'm a big guy. Like, I, I know I'm a big dude. I know I look intimidating. I know, you know, all of those things are counting against me. So I don't want to continue to play into that stereotype and have people going thinking, oh, man, this guy's going to try to take my, you know, my purse. Or this guy's going to try to take my girl. Or this guy's going to try to, you know, whatever, you know, people that fear people of color would do would do you know so that's part of the code switching but you know when i'm around when i'm not in a situation where i need to you know be on my guard or have my spider sense you know kicked up to the you know 11 i can be myself and that's when you know the southern i guess would come out especially if i'm really tired and i haven't slept very well it'll come out um but jen's even pointed out you know when i talk to my mother like my language changes a little bit you know, and I start you, dropping. You, you become Jimmy. I start dropping like she calls you Jimmy syllables, <laughs> and you sound like Jimmy. And when you're with your friends, like when, when you're talking to your friends on the phone, your friends mm-hmm. from Mississippi. But when it's like, and when we're fighting, that's also another thing. He gets a little bit more southern sounding. Yeah, I get real. <laughs> or he gets real excited. He gets a yeah, little southern. Get a little southern that too. But around my family and around my friends and our friends, he is. I mean, he, he presents himself in a very tidy and neat package, right? As, as one would have to in my situation. Yeah. I, I am the minority in the majority. I have to exist as a black person in white spaces. So yeah, I'm going to present myself a little bit differently. Jen, let's talk a little bit about, like, I'd love to know about, like, your time 
with him dating and like what 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 were family or friends reactions and i mean and as much or as little specifics as you want to yeah give. you could talk in generalities but um did you get a lot of crap for it was it okay yeah well i'll, I'll talk in generalities yeah in this we we got a lot of crap from uh from somebody from, in my in my immediate family gave yeah. us quite a bit of of trouble um with you know when i said you know i'm going to i'm going on a date i was excited i mean we had just spent the, the evening like talking for 4 hours and he asked me out on a date and i was like oh yeah no and then i said i was i was excited and i said well it's a it's a black guy and this person said well don't bring him by my house which shocked me because I come from what I thought was a fairly uh, liberal and open uh, family, right? Like we have very like my, my, my take on my family when before that would have been like, Oh yeah. Like there's nothing like no racism in my family. Like that's not a thing. And then when this person, you know, said that I was really, really, really surprised and it kind of evolved from there and came out in little interesting ways of, um, you know, they got, you know, uh, all the boys in my family got a, gr- a Christmas present from this person and Jameson didn't, which again, we'd only been dating for four months at that point, mm-hmm. but it was like a $5 gift. It was not that difficult. And things were said about, you know, my, my, my soon to be picking any babies, you know, and, um, which is which a I really didn't... derogatory yeah, term. Yeah, I didn't realize that until after you explained it to me because I had never heard that term before. I, it's like a remnant from like the 60s. No, I know. I, I looked it up afterwards. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> what? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was very shocked. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I had, um, you know, like I said, I was, I was a little thinner. I was younger. I was in my 20s. And I had just lost a lot of weight. And so this person said... Um, you know, you've just lost all of this weight. I can't believe you're just going to date that person. I, I just can't believe like you're, you're going to date him. You're basically wasting all of that hard work on dating me. So, which, which was like, I'm, I'm, I'm over here like banging my head up against a wall because I, I really wanted this person's approval and I wanted them to, you know, love Jameson as much as I did. And so it was very, um, I think it was more difficult because I knew that this person was a better person than this. I knew that they were smarter. I knew that they were, um, I, I knew that they knew better. I mean, because I had been taught better. Right. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a struggle. And I would say that the rest of my family, uh, was, uh, cautiously excited because I hadn't really dated a lot before Jameson. So I think that it was more of just like, well, I hope you're not running into this too fast. And, you know, other people like my dad, he came out and was just like, this is going to be, you're going to face some difficulties that none of your siblings have had to face in that you are not just different races, but my dad is very, he's very wise, like wise old owl. Don't sure no, cut that out. And um, he said that you know, not only would we have issues being from different races, but we would have issues being from different parts of the world and coming up very differently. Mm -hmm. And it's it's true. I think that we have faced um, a lot of our issues have come from the fact that, you know, he's an only child. I have four siblings 
Um, you know, he comes from a single parent household. I, you know, I come from my parents were divorced, but they were both very involved. And then I have stepmom who was very involved. Um, and, and, you know, he, he grew up in this part of the world that was just a, it was just like the opposite of where I grew up. So it yeah, was, I was all black, everything. And you were all white, everything. I didn't, like, I didn't I have a black kid in school until high school. And then I yeah. think there was only one or Same two. Here. Same here. It was predominantly black, everything. Like I went to a predominantly black school, shopped at predominantly black, you know, uh, places of business went to a predominantly black church. I mean, well, and not only that, but like we communicate black. very differently. Yeah, we do. We have we different ways of, of communicating and, and Jameson being a therapist has been really great about being able to try to get better about communicating, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. He's, you're very good about, about that. I try to be good about I, that, I but I'm not I do a lot of great. listening. I do way more listening than I do talking. And that's funny because I feel like I do a lot of listening. Well, that's because I've groomed you very well. I've trained you. <laughs> years so, of therapizing years. you. <laughs> Jameson, like, I mean, you're, okay, so we have family members, Jen's, you know, talking about how they were surprised that some of these family members would say things that were like, surprisingly, you know, like, why are you really racist? Are you so they were racist, really racist against, against him. And, and yeah. so Jameson, I mean, I think you've mentioned in Mississippi, like you knew who was racist and who wasn't, but yeah. in Utah, it's very passive aggressive. Yes. Yes. It's very difficult to know out here who's racist versus back at home well they're very they they let it's, their racist flag fly out in mississippi yeah definitely and here everybody myself included not racist but passive aggressive mm -hmm. so they're just very passively aggressive mm -hmm. in their racism yeah yeah so how does that translate um in in how you're treated specifically here in utah so that's where it gets really interesting because again i think because of how I was raised, I think because of the choices that I made that led me to be in this specific spot, I'm, I am an anomaly. And I will openly admit that I am definitely a unicorn in the situation. I mean, I, we practically live in like one of the safest neighborhoods, if not the safest in that neighborhood and like pretty much all of it's Salt a Lake really County, safe right? neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, you know, overall. And, and we have like an amazing neighborhood full of amazing people. I mean, it's like old, old, ancient white people that live in our neighborhood that you would think there's no way they would be friendly to me. And they're super friendly. Well, but we've talked you know? about this, how your, your blackness actually is a benefit to you in this situation, because yeah. not only are you well-educated, mm -hmm. you are packaged very nicely. Mm -hmm. You're clean cut. You wear yeah, all clean, the choices, yeah, all you, these choices yeah. I made that led me to this point. Yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of, and I don't mean to say this negatively to our neighbors or anything like that, but you do present yourself in a very easy way for them to fill that quota of having a black friend. You quote Lord of the Rings in your talks at church. I, I mean, <laughs> you have a nerd switch. I mean, or yeah. you're just nerdy, period. No, right? I, I'm totally nerdy. So like I said, I, I openly admit that I am a huge blurred. Totally. <laughs> a <Black>. blurred. <laughs> I have a massive blurred. And so, you know, because of that, I get it. And I, and I realize being a member one automatically takes, you know, that to the next level. Because if they know you're a member 
it's so much more easier for you to be able to relate to them because you share the same experiences being in a, a religion that is the dominant religion in this area. It also helps that, you know, I'm married a white girl. So I got like a white wife. So it's not like I'm coming in, you know, just straight out of Africa in like super black AF, you know, like it's not like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I live in a, in a, in an area where, you know, we have what jobs, cars, we own a house, you know, we're homeowners like all I mean, these, not to brag, <laughs> but we're but, but all of these like <laughs> these variables, all of these factors are you know come into play, and I know that I benefit from that, and I totally see that because, and I told I told you guys this, but when we first moved into the neighborhood, you know, I was very scared, and and I still am to a degree very afraid to go out at night unless I'm in my car. I don't, I'm not outside, which I've never had to deal with. Which yeah, you never had to. Deal I mean, with I guess that. I guess I have in a way being a woman, it's difficult to go into the dark when there's big scary men out but i've never had to think about would my race impact somebody stopping and yelling at me or calling the cops on me or like i I can i have so much power to you know speak to little children Mm -hmm. and talk to old neighbors and you know maybe if i need to go oh it looks like their hose is on maybe i can go turn it off in their backyard never do that you would never Never. do that it would be no big deal for me to go because i'm i'm i've never had to think about that yeah so i think about all that stuff and i have like a procedure that runs through my head every time i walk out my house here are all the factors here are all the things that you need to consider here are all the safety protocols here are all the exits know where you are at all times, know how to get out of a situation, you know? And I was telling you guys in that conversation we had about, you know, every time I get behind the wheel, like I have a conversation with myself about everything that I need to know. If I ever get approached by off, you know, police officers, this is what I need to say. And the most important thing is just make it home to my family. I just got to get home to my family from there. Nothing else matters. Like I just have to get home safe. And it's sad and I get that and it's, it totally sucks that that's, that's my life and that's how I have to live it. But my, my example I wanted to get to was I ended up forgetting to get the trash cans out and it was garbage day the next day. So I quickly ran out to try to take these trash cans out to the curb. And then I, I started to run back in and I realized, mm-hmm. oh, wait, if I look like I'm running, then, right. then that's going to look bad. Don't so run. I, so I, I didn't run. I started walking casually and I don't know who it was at the time because we were new. I'm sure if I remember now, I could tell you exactly which neighbors it were. Uh, they were, but they said, oh, hi, Jameson. And it scared me so bad. I almost like jumped through this, like through the carport roof because <laughs> I was so scared that like I was going to, you know, I was getting busted for something. And that was when reality hit me that, wow, I am in like freaking Pleasantville, man. Like I'm in Mayberry as like the token black guy. Like I am protected because that's never, ever happened to me right. before. Well, we're very privileged. Yeah. We're very privileged as a couple because we do live in a neighborhood that cares to know about you mm-hmm. and wants to know about, I, I mean, wants to get to know you and, yeah. and wants to make you feel welcomed. Mm-hmm. I don't think that a lot of people in our same situation have that luxury. No, I don't. I don't think so. Which I fully admit that we have a lot of privilege. Again, being educated, being mm-hmm. a, a tidy package, if it were, you know, you you are you are easy to like yeah and you're also very nice i am very nice you're not not nice yeah i know i know and here's another funny side story 
whenever we go out, Jen's constantly yelling at me and being like, shut up. Like, we just came to get this thing. Why do you need to know everybody's life story? Oh my gosh. You know, I'm Every single, he has to know the name of everybody that helps him at the stores. And I'm like, you need to hustle up. I mean, I love people, you know, so I, I enjoy talking to them, which is why I got into the profession that I'm in. Cause I really enjoy that. I can ask a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's, it's more, and, and this doesn't mean that we're stopping your personal stories. If, if there's other experiences that, that come in the natural course of the conversation, but you know, I, I, I think a lot of people in this moment of black lives matter, for example, a lot of people have, have been able to open their ears and, or at least open their eyes and read online some different reactions and different perspectives on why black lives matter it's in our face right we have nothing else to do because of covid so we're we're here watching the news seeing these protests thinking about this we're online we see people that say things we don't agree with see people that say things we do agree with oh one example was um you know i was like oh i need to educate myself so i called jen and invited you guys over so we could talk about this and then I, and then later i read another story and someone's like it is not our, it's not black people's job to tell white people how to change and i thought oh no i've totally screwed this up you know it's hard i think it's hard like when you don't have a personal connection to know how to feel and what to think and what to do yeah, there's there's a lot of people that I think have heard an explanation of this, but I'd love to ask you guys, why can't it just be all lives matter? Don't all lives matter? I mean, it's not just black lives. It's all the lives. Why do we have to make it about one race when it can be about everybody? Do you want to take this one? You want me to no, take I want you to take this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably appropriate. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me just kind of break that down just a little bit and I'll, I'll explain it from uh, the black perspective of being the one who has experienced the systemic oppression that this nation has been built upon. You know, whether we want to argue about this or not, it is what it is. When the forefathers founded this nation and they set up these systems, it was not for, for us. All right. We were property at that point. So the system was never built for us to begin with because we're property. Why would it be? Why would we, you know, design a system that's going to benefit mule and oxen, their property, you know, and that's how black people were treated back in that time. We were property. So if you look at it from that perspective, from a system that was never really designed to benefit us from a system that was never really designed for us to be able to thrive when we were freed, uh, when Juneteenth came across it, which is, you know, kind of tomorrow, it's, it's today, this is when it's going to be released. Tomorrow. If you're listening, <laughs> oh, on yeah. The yeah. It's released. Yeah. Yeah. at that point, I mean, okay, slaves are freed now, but it's been for how many, 400 so years? So for 400 years, well, black people it's, it's, have we been were property. second sub, subclass, you know, second class citizens. You weren't even second class you know, citizens. Like we you were, weren't we citizens. Were property. So it's like now all of a sudden we have to adjust to live in this world where we were freed. And are we really free? Well, it's, I mean, yeah, the whole, the whole system of slavery and the whole system of, um, you know, trying to provide black people with a means to uh, take care of themselves. It wasn't put in place. No. There was nothing put in place. So what the, the answer was, was um, if you read the 13th amendment, it talks about uh, the abolishment of slavery, except for in the cases of, um, a punishment for a crime. So prisoners uh, could be doing slave labor. 
And so that was kind of the loophole that was found uh, back then to say, you know, we don't believe in slavery, but like we had all of this untapped, like we didn't, we didn't have to pay all of this people doing the labor. So now we have to figure out a way to get this free labor again so that we can keep our economy going. So it was prison systems at that point. And so thus began this cycle of oppression that has been going on since the mid 19th century you know, like finding different ways for the black man to become incarcerated. And if you look at it, it's one in 17 or something like that. White men are are incarcerated and every one in three black men are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I mean, considering that you're two thirds of the population that has not been incarcerated, it's pretty incredible to me that you are standing where you are Yeah, or sitting, I guess. Yeah. In this case. So because of slavery, you know, we get to this point, right? So then you start thinking about, okay, so as the majority, because we only make up 13% of the entire, you know, U.S. population as black people or, you know, people of color uh, from, you know, the African di- uh, diaspora. Yeah, but so white, diaspora. yeah, in the yeah. meantime, white population is mm-hmm. gaining traction. Yes. They're building their wealth. Mm-hmm. It's generationally improved. Yep. One generation is always going to do better than the next generation. Mm-hmm. And you get to this point where we are right now where you look at everybody and I have a seat at the table. You have a seat at the table, but like Jameson's just waiting for a seat to come to the table. And so Mm -hmm. in this circumstance, everybody has a seat and he says, well, I want a seat at the table. And maybe I say all seats matter. And he's saying, well, I don't have a seat, but all seats matter, not just yours. So if you understand it from that lens and from that, but I'm getting, I'm I'm tying, I'm going to tie it together for you. Okay. Cut that out. So if you can understand that perspective, then you get why all lives can't matter because black lives don't matter right now. And until those lives are mattering, then all lives can't matter. Because if black lives are lives and we're talking about all lives, that can't be a thing. You know, it's, it's theoretically impossible for all lives to matter if black lives aren't mattering right now. And so Again, I can see it from both sides. I can see it from the angle of, well, shouldn't we all matter? Shouldn't are we all human beings? Yeah, we should. But again, because of slavery and the system systematic oppression that has resulted from that, and us trying to gain from a system that was never built or designed for us from the beginning, you have to understand from that perspective. If you're saying all lives matter, that's more systemic oppression coming towards us because it's like, well, you know what, your cause it doesn't matter. Because what really matters is all of us and all being the majority. The majority of the American population is white, Caucasian, of European descent. So until black lives can matter, all lives can't really matter. So when you say that to anyone, any person of color, that's the reaction you're going to get is, "Mm, no, not really. All lives can't possibly matter. Just kind of going from that place. I also want to throw this out here too. If you... If you're wanting to support a cause, I've never heard of anyone giving more pushback about supporting causes than supporting Black Lives Matter. I've never heard anyone give so much pushback to, you know, protesting by taking a knee as, oh, you're being disrespectful to the flag. Like if someone says, save the rainforest, no one will immediately come back and be like, oh, so you don't care about all the other forests out there in the world that are dead or suffering? You don't care about the Redwood Forest? You don't care about the Sequoia Forest? You don't care about you know, whatever. No, because people get the rainforest is on fire. Exactly. Like people get that, you know what I mean? But whenever it comes to any type of issue around race or race relations or anything of that nature, 
that's instantly where people well, it's a really go. touchy subject because I think people don't like being called out on any kind of privilege or any kind of, um, they don't like to think that they're ahead because of the color of their skin. They like to think that they're ahead because of the merit of their, of their actions. Right. I mean, that, that's the definition yeah. of privilege, yep. right? Is you are ahead and it's based on no effort of your own. It's just, it's based on things that are completely out of control. Born in Santa Barbara. I was born to a upper middle-class white family in Santa Barbara. So I had opportunities. I'm six foot seven sports paid for my college. Like these are things that I did not earn. Yeah. I worked hard to play sports, but my natural incredible body. <laughs> just an Adonis over there. Uh, just Your don't, dad bod. Just don't, just don't look at my waist or hairline. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what, that's what privilege is. But here's another point then is, and obviously this is not my point. <laughs> this is not yeah. my voice, but, but the protesting and the, the violence and the destruction of property, you know, I understand that, that there's racism and there's, we can even grant that George Floyd and others could be racially motivated violence, but I mean, the, it's not solved with, with destruction of property. How do you respond to something like that? So there's a couple of parts to that too. If you're having problems in your family and there's a lot of abuse going on in your family and you are desperately screaming for help and no one is listening to you and no one is hearing you, you're going to try to bring attention to your family's problems and the fact that you're being abused, right? Like that's just something you're going to do. Now, it's going to come out one of two different ways. It's going to come out in the form of acting out you're going to do some stuff that's going to really get people's attention, like, you know, tagging, you know, your neighbor's fence or, uh, you know, destroying their garden that they worked so hard to, you know, put together. You're going to do something to get that attention. And I think what the problem is, is a lot of times people who are benefiting from the privilege, the white, you know, white privilege will come at it from this angle and say, well, why are you graffitiing this place shouldn't you know better than the graffiti all you had to do why was ask you, why are you destroying my garden we would have helped you we, we, we would have i would have helped you out where but no what you really should be asking is what's happening with you what's wrong what's going on with you are you okay because it's not about destroying the garden it's not about graffitiing the fence it's not about any of that that that's just a reaction that's just the acting out part what it's really about is what's going on up underneath that because that's what's going to give you an indication as to what is happening. Because what you're looking for is the root of the problem, not the symptoms. Well, and you also put it a different way and saying they didn't listen when we knelt. They didn't listen when we protested. They didn't say that it was appropriate that we did this or that. Mm -hmm. How can we get them to listen? And so it comes down to you know, making a little bit more of a stink. And I, I, I get that there's like agents of chaos in there that are just doing their thing and taking advantage. I can't imagine that there would not be, but I think more than anything, this has gotten a really serious conversation going mm -hmm. about race relations in the U S and how it is, it is, it is geared not towards people of color. And listen, rioting is the language of the unheard. If you're not being heard any other way, then you're going to get that attention somehow. And it's going to come out in the worst possible ways. And rioting and destruction of property is one of those ways. 
but again, where I take issue is the fact that there's that so much white backlash about that. Well, specifically about kneeling during the anthem. It's misplaced. Mm -hmm. We're again, we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, uh, figure out what the symptoms are instead of trying to figure out what the cure is. Well, and I think specifically what you said the other night that really resonated with me as well. I mean, I still learned so much about you Mm -hmm. after almost a decade together. The more you know. (laughs) (laughs) You said, because I've always looked at it uh, with Kaepernick kneeling for the anthem and the flag. I always looked at it as that's a really impactful way to protest and to be, you know, be heard. And I I always got confused. It's like, well, why did veterans get so upset? And like, why was this against veterans? He's just kneeling for the flag. And it was brought up the other night that it's so much more than that because the flag is looked at as this, you know, really revered symbol of America. And that was just the most awful thing that he could have done. And I think that you said it, Jameson, really poignantly when you said, what has the flag done for us? as black people. This is a flag that we didn't, we built this country. We were not paid for it. We did not gain anything from it. What has this flag done for us? Why, why would I have the respect and revere it as much as that? If it, if it's not, I mean, it's been a symbol of, of oppression. I mean, for 400 years, I guess not 400 years, but at least a hundred years before slavery ended and 200 years before the civil rights amendment, what did it, what did it do? It didn't do anything. In fact, to this day, when I look at the flag, it doesn't mean anything to me the way that it means to, you know, my white counterparts. It doesn't mean anything to me the way that it means to like veterans, because I look at this as, listen, it's like unrequited love. You know, you're chasing after this girl who's never going or guy who's never going to, you know, return the love. Why why would I want to continue to do that to myself? Why would I want to continue to have that reminder there? I see the American flag and I instantly see a country that I love, but it doesn't love me back. So what would that mean for me? Why would I put so much emphasis on a piece of fabric that represents so much of what is wrong with America right now? Why would I care about that? So when you think about taking a knee for that particular purpose, no, it's not about the flag at all. What it's about is the inequality that we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. What it's about is how whenever I say Black Lives Matter, you instantly have to come at me with All Lives Matter. Whereas if I say save the koalas, nobody else is coming and screaming, well, what about the pandas? What about the pandas? That is a, a, a direct tie to the poison that continues to you know, take this nation by storm and, and how we continue to devolve as people. Because we get well, caught up made, in that stuff. It's made into a partisan issue and it's really a human being issue. Mm-hmm. Right? And like I said, you get no other pushback anywhere else. It's only when it comes to this sort of stuff. Well, I think people get really caught up in like being called out on any form of, of racism, whether it's unintentional or intentional. And that's where checking your biases comes in. And, and I have to do it too. I, and I tell Jen this all the time. I have a real bias against Southern sounding white women. Because I have a lot of trauma that I carry from my time being in Mississippi with, you know, Southern sounding bells. Like and just, bells and you songs. know, a Southern sounding woman in our neighborhood. <laughs> I won't name names, but you know who this is. Yes. And he did, he, he, he held her at arm's length. And I'm like, she's a very nice person. Cause but she is. is she though? 
She's a very <laughs> nice she person. Is. She's I mean, a nice person. again, so but I, she's got that little southern twang that so he's just like. I had, to, I had to check my I had to check my biases on that because my spider senses went crazy, and but but that had nothing to do with her. You know, that had nothing to do with her, and it's the same with you know, it's the same medicine I have to take. You know, I can't be like, hey. I'm not that black dude that robbed you or that killed your cousin. Okay. I'm a completely different black dude. All right. It's the same principle. I have to check my biases. I have to make sure that I'm aware of what's coming up for me and I have to address my own trauma and work through that stuff. Right. Right. But what I'm saying is this, this whole, this whole problem, this whole issue arrives, arises from the fact that there's so much institutionalized racism. There's so much deep rooted racism Racism that you're not even aware that you have is these implicit biases, these microaggressions that come out that, for example, this person who you were so sure would be a much, much better person about us having a relationship. I was so caught off guard. Again, it's, it shocked that person too, because they didn't realize that they could be racist because it just never dawned on them in that form. And now they're, you are the favorite of this person because I am so much like this person because you are very likable too, as a human being. Yeah. So again, we can't sit here and try to continue to focus on the symptoms. What we need to focus on is the root of the problem. How did this become an issue in the first place? Right. And until we can start having educational like talks and conversations and open people's awareness about that, there's no way for that to take place. And so this is why when you hear black people say, look, it ain't on me. It's on you. That's what we mean. You know, we've, we've done our due diligence. Well, we you've put, been screaming for we, years. We've been screaming for years and we put 400 years worth of work into this. At this point, we have no voice. We have nothing left to give. So if I say, Ooh, my bad, that's not going to be okay. That's not going to be okay. You got to do a little bit more than that. Shoot. Yeah. You got to pass that information on to the next uneducated person. Right. Who may not know who may just be caught in their own bubble. Cause that's what we have a tendency to do when we're afraid of something. What do we do? We always retreat. Yeah, we go back into what I don't want to deal with something that's hard. Yeah. I don't want to make myself feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And not to be all Yoda y on you, but you know, fear breeds what? Hate. Hate breeds what? Suffering. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it is what it is. Look, I warned you. I was blurred. Okay. I warned you. I followed um, you. I even put but, the voice but that's back. But that's what it, it basically boils down to. And until we, we find that love in our hearts and that compassion to like reach out and, to, and do something about it instead of retreating and, you know, continuing to be afraid of it, we're always going to be stuck here. And I think, you know, and this ties back into our faith as being, you know, Christians, not even about being Latter-day Saints, just being Christians. You know, we really got to work a little bit harder at being more Christ-like. And loving those who society wouldn't typically want to love. Jesus was hanging out with all the lepers. He was hanging out with all the strippers. He was hanging out with all the hookers. He was hanging out with all the misfits of that of that community, of that society. And he still had love for all of them. And so if we get beat up, if we get all, you know, up in our fields about, well, you got to respect the flag. Is that being Christ-like? When you paid so much more attention to a piece of cloth than human life? And that goes back to Black Lives Matter. Not because our lives are better than yours, but we matter. We're getting slaughtered in the streets, man. I mean, you're asking for the bare minimum. I'm I mean, just, I, I mean, matter wanna, I is just the bare want minimum. To matter. I just want to like live my life the way anyone else can live their life. 
can I just go take my cans out? Can to the, I live? Can I take my cans out to the edge of the driveway at night and not have to fear that I'm going to be, you know, thought of as robbing somebody? Or, and this is something, something that I nefarious. didn't, I didn't realize this until, I mean, well, I wouldn't say well into our marriage, but after a couple of years, you know, you kind of notice that he doesn't like to do things that I have no problem doing. He said to me the other night, he was taking a loaf of bread to somebody and he says, I mean, literally around the corner, I mean, around the corner, should I just drive my car? And it's dark. I'm like, no, walk. He's like, oh, okay. Obviously very nervous about it. And it was fine. But yeah. that's the sad thing though. Like, but you had to should, think about it. I shouldn't it. have to think about you that. Did, I yeah. should just right. be able to say, it's no problem. It's it would be no away. issue for me to just be like, I'm just going to run this around the corner real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little while ago, within the last seven to 15 minutes, uh, Jameson, you, you said something that we try to embody on this uh, podcast and in our lives is just sitting down and listening to people, uh, talking to people, understanding what they're going through. And that's the only way. And then, and then the important part is turning around and educating others. That's what we're trying to do here. But we also, one of the things that, that happened after we talked with you the other night was, oh my gosh, what other groups are we blind to? What other groups do we not understand? What other groups can we reach out to and talk to? And <laughs> we wait, we put the Black Lives Matter poster in our window. And then we have our um, pride flag our pride hung flag up. Hanging. And Alan asked me, is there any other group that we're that we're leaving out that we need to is there a post-mormon sign we could put up somewhere no and like we were just like okay and and i think um jameson what you said is you know being blind to your own biases right um i think that plays a big part and alan and i have been talking more recently about kind of the the long-term effects of this on um specifically for policemen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I read an article about the, the, the Salt Lake PD's morale is at an all-time low. And Alan listened to a uh, podcast, right? It was by Sam Smith. Sam, Sam, no, that's a singer, but I do like Sam Smith. Sam. Uh, Sam Harris. Sam Harris, that's right. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about what that... Oh, sure. I mean, obviously... Yeah, real, I'll try to be quick, but obviously these these are extremely complex issues and it's it's black and white thinking. I mean, pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's black and white thinking that we need to avoid mm-hmm. where uh all all police officers are not racist. Is that a fair statement to make? Absolutely. Right? Um do is the purpose of this movement to put down and hate on police. No, not no. at all. No. And I, I actually think maybe Jameson, could you talk briefly? I'm talking like 45 seconds about what the, uh, what the role of police in all of this is. Cause we haven't really discussed police. Mm-hmm. I, I, the way I look at things that there are, there's a racial revolution going on and that's a strong word that is used deliberately and then there's police reform going on. And they're, they're two separate bubbles, but they're not mutually exclusive. No. They overlap. And they, mm-hmm. there is some overlap. And uh, what, what is your take on, on that topic? 
So if I can do my best Cliff Notes version in 45 sure. seconds, yeah, that's what, what, what I would say. I would say um, I don't think it's about wanting to hate the police. I don't think it's about any of that. What I think it's about is wanting our police officers to be more accountable for each other. When there's one police officer not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you need to step up to the plate and be like, hey, bro, we don't do that. You know, we're here to protect and serve, not to torture and, you know, kill and slaughter. That's not what we're here for. I think if we can remember that, that's going to help out a ton. The other piece to that is, man, I, I would get that. When I, in fact, when I read the statement, and I was telling you guys this before we decided to start our official recording, I read the statement from this gentleman, and all I could think of is, man, if I just tweak a couple of words from, like, police officer to just being a person of color, we're both saying the same thing. We're tired. We're broken. We're exhausted. Our moral morale is at an all-time low. All we want to do is just be able to live and to do our jobs and to go and do the things that we love doing. And we can't do that right now because, you know what, we're getting spit in the face, you know, or we're being targeted or we're worried that we're going to be targeted by some deranged person that wants to keep us from being able to do what we love doing. You know, none of this, this is any different than what we're trying to do and accomplish with these protests. Police brutality has no place amongst any of us anywhere at any time, whether it's police brutality towards white people, towards black people, doesn't matter. Police brutality is just unnecessary and is not wanted. Now, we're not going after every single police officer and saying, you suck, you suck, you suck. That's not what it's about. Look, I'm telling you right now, I'm in my late 30s. I own stuff. I need police, okay? There ain't nobody else to call if some stuff goes down, all right? I need to have police in my life, all right, for those purposes, okay? But at the same time, I don't want to have to be clutching my my heart every time a police officer pulls me over or drives by and is looking at me suspicious because what have we been seeing in the world lately? A lot of senseless, you know, police killings. And and I just think that that's where we're trying to uh, target, not police officers in general. Yeah that's, yeah, that's great. And what he's referencing, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you a little context and then I'll read it. So um, after Alan and I talked about policemen specifically, we have a really good friend in our last ward who has spent his whole career um, as a police officer. He is an excellent human. He has an excellent family. And um, it dawned on us that they're probably, they're probably, um, really, really upset and sad and, um, also run down. And, um, we just decided to check in on this friend of ours. And so I want to read to you his response and then what Alan and I thought of after, um, this is his response to us. He said, to tell you the truth, I am physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually beat down and worn out. I've worked 16 days straight 83 hours last week alone. I am tired of the hate directed towards me and my fellow officers for something that we had no part of. I am tired of being yelled at, spit on, and having objects thrown at me. I'm worn out because I fear that my family are going to be the targets of some deranged person and that wants to target them because of what I do for a living. I want and need sleep. But fear that if I don't keep watch over my house and family that something bad is going to happen. 
uh, out of fear. He doesn't do that. I am tired of that. The mayor city council um, and city council only care about votes and continue to throw me and my fellow officers under the bus for political gain. I'm tired that the police administration will not stand up for us and we'll kneel down with protesters that are yelling that the only good cop is a dead cop and other vile things. Uh, we have had 10 officers retire or resign within the last week. If I could afford my own insurance, I would leave also. But unfortunately, I'm stuck in a job that I once loved and now I hate. Sorry for being so direct. I am broken and beat. After I read this last night, I, I, I was emotionally, I mean, it was, I was totally drained. I, I mean, we know this family personally. So I, I feel very upset and sad for him and his family. Um, I love the parallel you just drew, Jameson, because it, it is right on the money. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there are many people on both sides suffering, obviously, good, good people who are trying um, their best and are just not quite making it. As far as the future goes, you know, future goes and, and what it holds and um, maybe some reform that needs to happen with police. Um, what is it that we can do to support? Because I think it's not mutually exclusive. You can support Black Lives Matter and you can also support your local police. What do you think, Jason Jameson? Oh, absolutely. You sure can. Because you know who was a police officer? My aunt. You know what else? She's black. So you can support a black life that's also a, a blue life, I guess, if you want to use that rhetoric as well, because it's on both sides. You know, there are white allies out there that want to help, that want to do whatever they can to help out. And that's what this is all about. It's not about trying to be divisive. And unfortunately, this country is sick. We are divided deeply. And we are primed for, for, for to be basically toppled. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this same thing play out in like some of my all time favorite, you know, sci fi, fantasy, fandoms, fictional account, all of that. It's the same thing. You divide a, a, a company or you divide a, a, a civilization and they are primed for fall, for failure. Let's, t- let's tie it back to the main purpose of this podcast. I mean, look at the book of Mormon. And in fact, one of the, um, uh, one of the members of the stake presidency who is in our ward there. Now, you know who I'm talking about (laughs) without me saying his name. He talked to me the other day and I really appreciate it because he knows what I do and don't believe, but he kind of made this parallel as we were talking about this topic is he said, uh, look at the book of Mormon. The Nephites couldn't get over their differences with the Lamanites. They couldn't get over their own bias and it destroyed their civilization. It, 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 it's exactly what you just talked about, Jameson. Mm-hmm. And I love how you use talks that you could take our friend's words, repl- do a copy and paste or a find and replace rather with just a couple of things. And it can, it is, it could have been written by you about how sick and tired you are of all the oppression and everything that you have to go through. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that isn't to throw it back in his face. It's to no, say, not we are not that different. Exactly. Doesn't, doesn't this suck? Doesn't it yes. suck that we have to go through this? Yes, exactly. Exactly. When we are stronger, when we are united, 
that that's what I would like to see accomplished. And, you know, I tell Jen this all the time. Look, I'm not an angry militant, like, black man. Like, that's just not my thing. Like, well, I'm you're not super... looking to be offended for no, the sake of no, being offended. No, not at all. And and for me, all I want is for nothing more than for for us to be able to get past this and to be able to get ourselves to a place where we can recognize that we are different and still be together regardless, mm-hmm. you know? Instead of being like, oh my gosh, I don't understand that. So therefore I'm going to, you know, be afraid of this. And then. Well, gonna... well, ign- ignorance breeds fear, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, thank you, Yoda. Yes. That's what <gasps> yes. I've been trying to say. <laughs> but, you know, in all seriousness though, that that's the whole point that I'm trying to get across is we have to do a better job as a nation. That means me. That means you, all of us, we have to do a better job as human beings to respect each other as human beings and to listen and to listen and to recognize, you know what? <clears throat> I can see why this, this would be a, a sucky situation for you. How could I help you? And I think, I think more so, especially for us as Christians, like mm-hmm. having empathy, yes, having empathy for other people's situation and mm-hmm. outlook on life mm-hmm. and understanding that like, just because I live my life one way, doesn't mean that you have to live your life that way too we can to make be, me comfortable with right? the fact that i'm living my life this way you yeah. have to do that now you know and i'm gonna throw this in here too because i'm a therapist and that's just what therapists do uh if you're not familiar with dbt it's dialectical behavioral therapy i practice this all the time at my work there is a dialectic that we all have to try to maintain a balance with there's one idea that runs in our head that you know what we're okay we're doing fine there's another ideal that's also running in our head that says and we can do better and it's the that balancing act of trying to balance those two dialectics together simultaneously i'm doing great and i can be doing better and i think if we can all focus on that and we can look inward for that that balance we're going to see this thing through and there will be you know light on the other side of it but it takes us doing some real deep introspective stuff for ourselves and some and real feeling work uncomfortable. and sitting in the unknown, sitting in the uncomfortable, sitting in the ickiness of that in order for it to work. Because sometimes the only way through it, the only way past it is through it. Right. Jen Jameson. Thank you guys. You guys. Thank you guys <laughs> so much thank for, you. for thank coming you on guys. and talking about this. Um, You're very welcome. Thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. We, you know, we want to challenge everybody that's listening to have these conversations. Put yourself in that position to be uncomfortable, to learn, and to hit your biases straight in the face. That's the only way you're going to get rid of them. That's the only way you're going to get rid of them. And notice that that invitation doesn't have to only apply to race though it certainly should in this moment in time. And in fact, you're probably already having those conversations if you're in a mixed faith marriage. You are uncomfortable. You're having difficult conversations with your, with your spouse. You're having those fierce conversations, as I call them. Dive right into this also. I think the best moments of this podcast in the past, this is episode 76 or so, I think the best moments have been when you and I have worked through uncomfortable conversations on air. That's when we build 
the most, that's the biggest wins come through the fighting through the discomfort. When, well, that's when the, the most growth happens, right? When you start to understand someone else's point of view and you work through those things and you realize and recognize why you're feeling discomfort and then maybe your heart begins to change and maybe you do something about it. That's where you're growing. And, and Alan and I absolutely felt like we grew in that just four hour conversation that we had with um, you guys, Jen and Jameson, when you were in our home. So, I mean, honestly, we gained so much from it and I hope that the listeners um, gain just as much tonight as, as we have. So thank you very much for being on here. Well, you're welcome. Well, it is our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate that. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love You see, war is not the answer, for only love can comprehend. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and here today. Picket lines and picket signs, don't punish me. With brutality, talk to me so you can see. See what's going on.